Now slam it. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Guthrie Straw. And I'm Aaron Flores. Let's try that again. I'm Aaron Flores, broadcasting from the People's Republic of Portland, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. We are the show that brings you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains, transit, simple living, adventures, and life hacks. And today, in my backyard? Yes, in my yes, backyard. In my backyard. Today, here we have uh, Madeline Kovacs, who's joining us um, as a part of the Yimby movement, which is Yes, in my backyard. Uh, Madeline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, you guys. And um, Madeline will be talking with us a little bit later in this segment. Uh, but first, let's catch up on the week. And it, it's, it's been a very busy one, hasn't it, Aaron? Quite, quite. I have traversed the country and come back there I mean, and back again I guess I just, an errand's tale I just flew across coasts. okay but you did take the you took the bromptons no we didn't take bromptons this time around that's okay we won't we won't bike shame <laughs> <laughs> i we probably could have swung it um but the day after thanksgiving is the day that clever sells all of their you know old okay. rental stocks which is what we would be taking okay and and they wanted to sell them right and they did have new rental stock in but it hadn't been processed yet mm. you know um yeah and i wasn't willing to kind of uh twist any arms i wanted to keep some yeah. of that goodwill for for later favors I oh guess. certainly well you also you also lost a day there so that that makes good sense <laughs> <laughs> right but you you right. made it and uh how how was your time there um it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I Instagrammed the the crap out of Thanksgiving Day, mm-hmm. I think. Uh I smoked a, a a salmon for those who don't eat poultry, myself. Mm-hmm. That was it, really. Was but it a <laughs> was it a local salmon? Uh it was local to Michigan. Okay. <laughs> Probably farm raised yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was just <laughs> just curious. Uh I honestly don't know where it came from. It could have come from Chile for all I know. <laughs> Uh, for sure it it came from the local supermarket excellent which you know um in, in a town of three thousand people you're not gonna dig too deep yeah fair enough fair enough any uh, any exciting things happen while you were there um nothing nothing super major just it was anna's first time in michigan and uh meeting my family and uh them meeting her and it was kind of the whole like meet the parents only in reverse she met my parents ah. uh, yeah we all enjoyed each other oh i think it's worth noting that at some point there were 36 people in, in my mom's house oh wow for thanksgiving day that's a yes. true thanksgiving right there yes over the years she um um helped a few refugee families um sort of gain uh, visas and then, you know, uh, be able to, not residency. Well, yeah, to gain residency. Um, And so, of course, those families decided to come to Thanksgiving. So, like, our extended family got huge. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, But it it was pretty cool, like, just seeing 
my my view of midwestern white michigan mm-hmm. uh being challenged and and growing mm-hmm. I, I yeah i found that very good okay gotcha how um did you have any good thanksgiving stories or thanksgiving going on madeline I had a great Thanksgiving going on. I don't know if it quite counts as a story, but I went home for 36 hours. Okay. <laughs> My little brother picked me up. He actually works for a local farm in the Bay Area, so he picked me up and drove me around with a bunch of avocados and other fruits and vegetables. Oh, yeah. And then we um, we combined Thanksgivings, actually, with really good family friends who are basically like family. Okay. And I hadn't seen them in years. And Nice. So basically when that happens, we all just rehashed camping stories. Mm-hmm. And then my mother and um, my good friend Jane, who again is a family friend, their peers, they tend to kind of leave the rest of us at the kitchen table to talk camping because they have mm-hmm. absolutely no interest. So I didn't gotcha. get to see my mom a lot at that dinner, Okay, but it was really, really wonderful. <laughs> is there like one central camping story that everybody just has to tell mm-hmm. every time folks get together? Yeah. And it's actually worse than that. It's, okay. I can't believe we convinced Madeline to go to Bodie. Okay. So Bodie is this little historical ghost town in the middle of central California. And by town, I mean like four remaining buildings mm-hmm. with no awnings. And basically, um, rumor has it, I was I was young. I was impressionable. I was maybe 13 at the time. My family friend Jim um, wanted to go to Bodie because he's a historian, very into this kind of thing. But my dad, you know, really wanted to show our other family friend Tom the Yosemite Falls for the first time because okay. he'd never seen the Yosemite Falls. So there were five of us on this trip, and it came down to a vote. So it was my dad and Tom wanted to see the falls. And then Jim had convinced his son, my good friend Jeffrey, to go to Bodie. So Madeline, it's all down to me. <laughs> After hours of deliberation, Jim just tell he, he weaves a good yarn. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Bodie, all the way Bodie. So we drive out into the desert for three hours, uh, stand in the sun looking at four very old buildings, and then drive back. That was our entire day. So I am now 31 years old. This happened when I was 13, and I cannot see these people without the Bodie story okay. coming oh. up. <laughs> yeah. Was it was it worth the drive? No. <laughs> was it was it worth the story? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Not even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> did you go anywhere worth the drive? Worth the drive. Um. Yes, I did. Uh, so Jane worked for Thanksgiving at Powell's, and I found myself with a free Thursday. So. Um, a friend from Chicago was in town, and I went down to Salem and had Thanksgiving with his family. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was, it was pretty swell. Um, it was like uh, the first like real-ish Thanksgiving I've been to in a couple of years because my aunt and uncle uh, basically said, okay, like everybody's grown up now. We're sick of doing this, and we're going to go do other things instead. And right I think on. the whole family was kind of just like, yep, that makes total sense. <laughs> um, so, so with that and people you know, starting to leave the nest, um, it was... Yeah, it was very nice to be in like a family Thanksgiving setting and um, always good to catch up with good friends. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of catching up with mm. good friends, do you know a great place to catch up with good friends hmm. or even to meet perfect strangers? Let's see. I, I might know of a place. Is it down in southeast Portland? Why, it is. is southeast it? 12th and Division. Is to it be called exact. the Beer Mongers? The Beer Mongers at southeast 12th and Division drink sponsor for the day yes thank Madeline, you beer mongers uh, oh wonderful now i get fruit. the extra beverages <laughs> yes <laughs> yes whichever one you want cheers I'm, oh right i'm i'm still enjoying the german trend of the monkless Be- belgian males um <laughs> although albeit from bend oregon uh having the peppercorn imperial wit today wow. and 
What have you got in that hand? That is a striking ginger beer from Reed's. Mm. The extra ginger. And how's yours treating you, Madeline? It's so good. The grapefruit is actually my favorite. Lizzie. Okay, excellent. Ah. Always a good, fresh and refreshing flavor. So thanks to the beer mongers down at Southeast Division and 12th. A cheers to everybody, friends yeah. new and old. <laughs> As we blink and we, I don't spill beer this week yeah. so <laughs> we're, we're doing okay here always a little nerve-wracking when you're when you're reaching across the table and across some technology yep. to with, <laughs> some, uh, with some beverages for sure that's okay adulting is really hard sometimes it is um what else ha- anything else exciting happen while you're out uh, that you want to share with our listeners the way you ask that, I feel like I should already have something loaded. Oh. Like, did anything you... not exciting happen? Was it? Did anything <laughs> mundane and trivial? Occur? I don't know. Like, I feel like, like, did you have something in mind? Oh, like, no, I didn't have anything. Was in I mind. supposed to get engaged? That that's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't push you, Aaron. But it's I, it's kind of going on a couple of years here. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I haven't got that speech in a long time. Oh, did you get it when you were back for Thanksgiving? No. Okay. That's great. No, that's why I'm saying I haven't got that speech in a long time. Um, it happened, I think the last time it happened was uh, when Anna and I moved in together. Okay. Like anyone really cares to hear about this right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to interject and ask if I could ask a borderline rude question. You can oh, ask please. any question. There's, <laughs> there's hardly anything off, off limits here. I was going to ask if maybe she didn't push the subject because she met your family. Oh, no, no, no. Anna's never pushed the subject. I'm talking about, like, my mom pushing the subject. No, no. (laughs) No, Anna and I have long long talked about this before. Okay. (laughs) Although, she's been awfully... Sorry, I I didn't mean to, like, freak you out there. I'm so sorry. You're fine. (laughs) Yeah, everything's cool. Um, I can't say... I can't say I have anything like loaded and ready to go other than I am looking forward to a few things. Mm. Uh, One being, you know what's happening on Tuesday. I know we're going to talk about this when we get to the calendar section, but I still got to say it's on my mind. There is a big event occurring. This Saturday. At 6 o'clock, starting at 6. The first and hopefully first annual uh, Portland podcast podcast festival oh yeah yes and we were lucky enough to get voted in yeah and so now i get to spend saturday not eating anything for fear i will throw it back up oh do you have have the the stage right i never i never got over it okay never got over it interesting yeah Yeah. i um i i in full confession have a bit of that myself so all right we'll be like buddies up on the stage we'll like be puke buddies we'll be co not eating anything <laughs> on saturday buddies but i hear there is beer and a party afterwards so yes afterwards um, oh yeah perhaps <laughs> yeah it's weird like it when you when you go up and and for the mc thing for um thanksgiving too it's like you, it's all this nervous tension then you you get up there and you're on the stage and it, for me it's just kind of like finally just just fades into the background um and, and very fortunate in that sense but I, I feel you. I did a lot of uh, choir shows and such, and, okay. and yeah. like especially back in track and field. Um, yeah, it uh, it'll get to you. Well, I I have the highest of hopes. Yeah, and uh, we'll get each other through it there. Do you have a uh, Do you have a like pre stage ritual? Uh, let's see. I used to listen to full albums of Janis Joplin, Pearl, which um, was about as long as I needed to like totally just get in the zone. Okay. Um, counting 
reciting phone numbers are ones and really? i also oh yeah huh um and then sign language too so i'll like count really quick on my hands and the physical activity sort of like tricks your brain into like forgetting what it was what it was like concerned ah, or worrying okay. about so um yeah or sometimes i'll say numbers and count numbers at the same time i mean this is we're talking like extreme examples here right right um but yeah just you know various methods to kind of like get yourself out of that zone yeah i uh when i'm um, presenting or speaking in it if i happen to be nervous i'll have a small object in one of my hands mm-hmm. um so you can kind of channel and in, into physical energy so that you're not it works it gotcha. helps yeah when i was doing the well i mean i still do it the tour guiding i have like a lanyard on the back of my bicycle and when i was first starting out and was like not so sure about like topics we were discussing or covering somebody pointed out once they were like is that like really special to you because you keep like playing with it as you're talking and i was like oh yep i'm totally just like distracted with the lanyard so nice yeah it's a, i could definitely see that do you have do you have any tips for for pres- pres- presentation givers i guess i would say hmm i have one tip yeah which is that um you don't have as much time as you think that you have like i think people tend to over prepare mm. or over script mm-hmm. and i think what's more important is knowing your material knowing your content and knowing the main points you have to get across gotcha. and that's it mm-hmm. um practice is good yeah but not scripted like you really conversations like people listen to someone who's conversational mm-hmm. Um, and seriously, five minutes feels like two, seven minutes feels like three yeah. and just go yeah. from there. Like that presentation back in school where you're yeah. like, oh, I could never do five minutes. And then soon enough, it's over. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, and you used to do work. Was it, it was I li- listening incorrectly with the UN or, or, um, it, so did you have to give presentations and such during that? So it wasn't for the UN. Okay. I was not an employee of the United gotcha. Nations, but <laughs> you were at the UN. I was at the, at okay. the UN for, okay. uh, Personally, for two years, but coordinated media teams for there for three gotcha. years. So it was a nonprofit project that organized youth around the world on climate change and okay. then went to the UN to report on underrepresented stories. Gotcha. And how did you get into that? Um, uh, in college, I was part of a renewable energy club called the, oh gosh, McAllister Renewable Energy Society. McAllister Community Energy. The abbreviation was Matt Cares. Okay. Nice. <laughs> and, we, and we basically did renewable energy projects and then on and off campus um, climate organizing, which is the first okay. national power shift in D.C. Oh, okay. Was it uh, power shift 2011, 2012? The first one was in 2007. Seven. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It goes back uh-huh. farther than, than uh-huh. yeah. Then was that? Then when I was asked there. <laughs> I, think okay. I, I think I hit the 2010 one there. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. There were three. Okay. Yeah. Um. Our, our university group was P-U-C-C-N, oh. uh, but we just called ourselves Pukin for short. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a much better acronym than ours. For sure. Um, and then, uh, so did that bring you into Portland there, where you sort of branched out into the, um, like, yes in my backyard type stuff? Or Almost. How, how did that connect? Actually, the thing that brought me to Portland was closing the distance in a long distance relationship, which immediately fell apart. Of course. <laughs> but I'm really glad that I stayed. Yeah. So I came to Portland to do urban planning work. Um, I actually did the first year of a master's program at PSU. Okay. I did not finish. I'm not going to finish. Interned for two years at the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability and then was hired by a local um, developer whose company is named after a child's book. It's called Orange Splot LLC. It's a very creative little company. Okay. I've never heard And then that. came to coordinate Portland for everyone as the YIMBY movement was um, being born, essentially. Okay. And um, for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about what that means or what is the YIMBY movement. So YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard, which is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek response to, you know, the historical not in my backyard. So the sentiment being 
um, we all need to pull together and these are our cities and I want to be involved in the solutions that we need to house people. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And it's um, Portland for everyone. It's so Portland for everyone.org. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And it looks like you work with a lot of folks too. I'm seeing a couple of names on here. The city repair project is one that jumps out. Um, so you have a lot of networks and a lot of relationships with local partners, it looks like. It's a very broad tent. So mm-hmm. essentially, we're a coalition. And to join the coalition, and again, we're members, um, nonprofits, um, community organizations, um, affordable housing advocates, local businesses, whomever agrees with our kind of five goals around housing affordability and um, housing options in Portland. Okay. So basically, if you agree that you want to be part of the proactive solution to Portland's housing crisis, and you agree with these five things, we want you. We get into the weeds on some policy stuff, mm-hmm. but coalition members frequently will also you know, agree with 90%, but then write their own thing or say, you know, we really want to focus on this. Can you coordinate me and my mm-hmm. members to come and you know, share our story and um, advocate in our own way. And the answer is always yes. Yeah. And that's okay, too, because everybody's got sort of different goals they're working towards. Broad tent. Yeah. Super broad yeah, tent. Yeah. Work on what you can get done together. Yes. What are the five things? Oh, God, let's see. You're testing me. <laughs> um, so if you pull up the website, you can you can check me on this. But um, I have pro- it up, but I won't check you. That's fine. I, I trust you. So provide housing for humans over housing for cars. Um, provide housing first and foremost for historically and currently underserved populations. Uh, provide abundant housing options in all neighborhoods. Create um, mixed income communities and oh, more housing um, close to par- existing parks and services. Okay. I think I got them. I got them all, you yeah. guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's looking great. <laughs> and I could see where a lot of people could really fit under these five things and be like, yeah, I'm all for it. And then when it comes to the the how to make these happen mm-hmm. is when sort of things get a little little wrinkly. By George, did you just hit the nail on the head? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I you know, just I can see these again like as as every, everyone well, I don't want to say everyone, but a lot of people can agree on on these things, I think. They can. And I think that's the difficult part, right? Is you know, for for a long time during the policy development process, you can kind of all go along together and say, okay, like we agree with this and we agree with this and we agree agree with this. And then staff will come out with a draft proposal that has the numbers. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly it's a completely different conversation. Gotcha. That's very, very interesting, but very dynamic. And I think um, we've been really successful in holding together our big tent. And I'm really proud of us. So um, like a typical meeting or proposal, like how many groups or how many folks usually show up to partake? It all depends. It's a wide invitation. Um, and actually, a lot of the brainstorms that we've had, especially with the not only the single dwelling, but the multi-dwelling um, proposal on the table, um, we also invited some um, people who are partners um, who either can't formally endorse for their own organizational reasons, like AARP. AARP is actually one of our biggest partners. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And we can we can get into why. It's actually really interesting. Yeah, I'd love to hear. I love them. Um, or like, you know, Portland Tenants United, like just like really good perspectives to have on the topic at hand, even if, again, they can't endorse for formal reasons or if they're kind of like, we agree with you on some things, but not on everything. But I know that there's still a huge part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's really valuable to have that perspective because it influences what we do, too. Okay. 
could you um give an example of of sort of one of the things you've worked together with them on and, and sort of it sounds like i guess not strange bedfellows is is not the correct term but it's um, a fine term yeah it's okay. true unexpected okay. unexpected <laughs> <laughs> strange <laughs> Ugh, what's that no so um that's i it, i think it puts like a negative <laughs> connotation but what i mean is that, that there's like a positive outcome coming mm-hmm. out of this and what i of course this is my interpretation right mm-hmm. running the program running the coalition moving things forward but I really think it's because we're at that moment where either the crisis is bad enough or we have identified enough similar parts of the solution where there's natural synergy mm-hmm. on these few things. And I think that that shows. I think that shows in the way that people are showing up. I think it shows in the way people are being creative. I think it shows in our public conversations. Um, I think there's a little bit more public education to do on kind of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, um, I'm really proud of the role that we've played in some of that. You know, we're not only a campaign, excuse me, and a coalition. We also really try to just do um, some semi-investigative blog reporting. I work with Michael Anderson, who used to work mm-hmm. for Bike Portland. Yeah. Um, he's a writer on we our have team. A, we have an article from Michael in our news today. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> speaking, speaking. Co-written that's with Tony wonderful. Jordan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Th- that, that's a good one. Yeah. I, yeah they're, they're awesome. And Portlanders for Parking Reform is a coalition <laughs> member and yada, yada, yada. But um, it's it's been nice to have that other ability to expand our knowledge and to continue seeking kind of broader solutions and to be really creative about our approach. And Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the reason we developed such a high readership so quickly is that people want to go along with that thought process and, you know, educate themselves, but in a really open frame. Mm -hmm. And I really, um, I'm, I'm, that is such an important part of the conversation. If you're going to have a broad tent and if you're going to move public policy and if you're going to be a trustworthy source, Mm -hmm. I think people need to know that you're not closed-minded, you're not shut down, you're really just looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. So in terms of those solutions, um, and this speaking of like Thanksgiving and, and like holiday conversations, um, it sounds like you've been able to do something that's very difficult these days, which is to sort of reach across the aisle and, and bring like all parties to the table. Have you had any like uh, examples of ways where that's happened unexpectedly or... Um, where that was like maybe like easier than it would have been expected Hmm. yeah i think um and there's a very particular reason too and i I don't want to say easy because Mm -hmm. yeah and maybe that's feel free to insert your own words as well no but more more synergy and more like i felt of public service and i've been really happy about that mm-hmm. was um talking about um the history that we have in portland of exclusionary zoning and mm-hmm. racism yeah. and i come to the i'm, I'm a new arri- arrival to the housing policy conversation right i know some stuff about land use i know some stuff about zoning i know a lot about climate change mm-hmm. i know a lot about building i did not know a lot about american history in mm-hmm. housing policy and how really terrible that's been and you're, you're, and you're talking no like redlining and yeah. okay and it's funny like this has been going on for so long but <laughs> it, it really only seems like the conversation is now started yeah yeah, yeah. in the past like couple of years yeah or maybe even just the past year and that was something where the the parlay into that was going to affordable housing providers and um, organizations working to get families in homes that have been underserved and were shut out 
right, of these neighborhoods and the housing market by public policy, frankly, for so long, they were like, oh, my God, we need to open up these neighborhoods, these housing solutions, and we need to have integrated communities. And we need to get these families into homes that they can afford. And here are the priority populations we need to be serving and why. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was an avenue of allyship that has been both a really huge education curve for me and Mm -hmm. something that was also pretty unexpected. Okay. And so through Portland for Everyone, um, tell us a little bit about like what does that process look like in terms of um, identifying needs and then sort of getting this coalition together to work towards that? Well, the reason that Portland for Everyone came together when we did was because um, Portland has a housing crisis. But on top of that, there was a very, very particular reason that a coalition around land use and zoning in particular came together. And that was part of that long, that uh, larger YIMBY conversation that we're talking about. First, we were inspired by other cities in the country who were starting to have kind of yes-in-my-backyard movements and coalitions. And mm-hmm. we kind of want to do a Portland-specific brand of that that okay. would not be everything that YIMBY is to everyone, but that would address what was going on locally. And um, I'll get wonky for a second, but bear with me. You're great. Yeah. Um, the, um... Bring on the wonk. <laughs> great. We, so... we, we do a fair bit of wonkism <laughs> okay, here. Okay, good. All right, turn up the volume, Chris. Um, The city of Portland um, right now is going through a series of implementation projects that implement its comprehensive plan update. So, again, Portland for Everyone is housed with Thousand Friends of Oregon, which is the land use watchdog for the state of Oregon. That group is the watchdog for our land use planning program in the state of Oregon that protects our urban growth boundaries, farms, forests, the whole thing. So as part of that program, for the last 45 years, Oregon cities have to show we have land zoned to accommodate all of the people at incomes. Okay, this is really important. At incomes and in ways and and provide the housing types that all Oregonians can afford. Right. Mm. So every local jurisdiction has to plan not only for population growth, but to accommodate their people at affordable levels. Okay. And we're we're failing. So um, is there like a stat or or a percentage that the city or that they're working towards or it's just sort of a moving target? If I were to throw one out, it would be a disservice to both the planners and anyone who cares about solutions because the milepost keeps moving. Fair enough. Fair enough. But the city is expecting about two hundred and sixty new households by 2035 and that's metro projections um, as close as we can get okay so the point is that um, during all these planning processes right we have these trains moving through the station we have these implementation projects that are implementing portland's comprehensive plan update we only do this plan update about every 25 years so the point being if we make land use and zoning decisions now that don't serve people into the future Mm -hmm. for a generation yeah right so basically the time was now We had a really strong coalition that just passed the bond measure, right? The Welcome Home Coalition. We had a really great coalition spearheaded by Opal Environmental Justice that did inclusionary housing, um, which basically says that in uh, developments with 20 units or more, some of them must be made affordable to working families. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, uh, but there was kind of a gap in the zoning um, knowledge and awareness of how will these land use changes make all of uh, that other programmatic stuff, right? Either easier or harder. Okay. So that's what we do. Okay. And within the the scope of it, is there um, like a metric that you sort of gauge whether that's working as intended or or it's, you know, take it as you can get it sort of um, in terms of of measuring progress in that regard? I think the only meaningful metric is how many more homes did we add? And then more importantly, how many more affordable homes did we add? Okay. And so... um, 
the way things are structured right now, we're going to get some more in multi-dwelling and commercial zones through the inclusionary housing, right? But that's only 20 units or more. Mm -hmm. So what we're really focused on right now, single-dwelling zones, quote-unquote, what I'll just call neighborhoods, cover about 45% of Portland's land area. 45% of, like, all land area is some version of one home per lot. Mm -hmm. So the major project that Portland for Everyone is organizing right now, around right now, is the residential infill project. Okay. And that project is trying to open up options for what we can do with small-scale housing solutions in 45% of our city's land area. Okay. And how do we tie some of that development capacity, right? How do we how do we structure a bonus structure such that you give developers more leeway and you also get more affordable housing in the mix too? Okay. I can see where this is probably one of the bigger issues that gets a lot of pushback. It is. From people, yeah. It is. And I think that, that pushback's been really interesting because some of it's um, misinformation and uh -huh. just people are scared. Things are changing really fast. And we'll sit yeah, down and have a conversation I can't with own my own home. <laughs> <laughs> That's wrong. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I imagine like there's there's that that element that people sort of they they hear this and, and they go mm. they they kind of take it to that nth degree. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the the biggest one, like the last um, sort of neighborhood meeting I went to, the biggest concern I saw was parking. Like parking was huge. Oh, they're taking away my parking. Um, that's it, it, that's and I, always a big one. Yeah, it is. And we'll be we'll be talking about this uh, via Michael's article a little bit. Yeah, Michael and I'm sorry, uh, Tony, Mike, Tony, Michael and Tony's yeah. article um, in a little bit. But is that something that you also see show up quite a bit, or or would you say there's like a primary concern that folks have? I think that the parking is number two. Okay. And by the way, um, just for everyone listening to, this is a great, <laughs> it's a mini little essay written by Ben Ross, who's a transportation expert out on the East Coast. It's called The Counterculture Looks for Parking. It's about boomer ideals and environmentalism and how that becomes very, um, very changed and almost very warped when you get down to a local hmm. uh, reactionary level. It's, okay. it's yeah. a fabulous little essay. Yeah. The, the Counterculture Looks for parking okay. yeah okay um so anyway um but yeah um so back to you, like what do you say mm -hmm. to the, these people who like kind of had these like gut reactions these mm -hmm. really visceral reactions to um i think there are a number of different approaches i mean it depends on that individual and what speaks to them and so what i actually like to do is just start by asking questions you know like why do you think that or you know, what have you heard or where are mm -hmm. you coming from? Because even just one follow-up question can reveal like, no, this person isn't actually in opposition to the goal. They just have this concern and this is the first thing that they've heard and we need to take a step back. Okay. A lot of the time, and it doesn't always work and I'm not always going to be able to convince someone that having a little bit less parking in the short term and, you know, a little bit more transit in the long term is an okay trade-off and people aren't <laughs> willing to make personal sacrifices and, that's how the cookie crumbles, you know? Mm -hmm. But I will say, Portlanders for Parking Reform has been one of our best coalition members in making clear to people how parking requirements, uh, minimum parking requirements on site, can ruin affordable housing. Both literally, there were there were a couple of projects that wanted to opt in, opt in, right, to the inclusionary housing program. We would have gotten 60 affordable units in Selwood. Well, we're basically not going to get any because of the interpretation of the parking requirements minimum. Mm -hmm. And so like uh, Sightline, Sightline Institute also does some really great writing on um, both YIMBY, um, YIMBY movement stuff, but also just general housing policy and parking. 
and they have done excellent studies on what is the impact of uh, minimum parking requirements on affordable housing, and it's very, very, very detrimental. Okay. And I'm recalling an article, I think maybe published in Bike Portland about a year, year and a half ago, um, also maybe written by Michael Anderson, uh, talking about like minimum parking requirements and uh, sort of a lot of the work that he had done with that uh, during that time, because mm-hmm. Portland sort of, you know, has an opportunity to, and there was a re, the, the new Portland building code that went into place recently, um, has also sort of changed that a little bit. Has that affected the work that you do in terms of the new zoning code? Or has it changed any approaches that um, Portland for Everyone is taking about reaching out to people? Um, I think that uh, if you look at where Portland has allowed there to be an exemption, right? So right now Portland allows an exemption for on-site parking requirements mm-hmm. for um, for lots within 500 feet of a frequent transit line. Okay. And where that's happened, like for example, um, the um, co-housing community that I live in is not legal in most areas of Portland. It's too dense. Hmm. Our units are too small, and you could literally not build it today unless you're within 500 feet of frequent transit. Okay. But we have a large um, biking community, and we're able to share costs because we're not footing the land cost, right, of housing cars. Hmm. And um, it gets even worse when you go underground to do underground parking. Mm-hmm. Um, and every story that you go down is it just it's millions of dollars <laughs> Dirt. It's huh. yeah. So I think um, uh, if you, if you look at buildings in Portland after that minimum was removed, you've seen a lot more units added within 500 feet of frequent transit, and there's a reason for that. Okay. If there was a uh, air or area that Portland for everyone was is sort of like uh, working on, but maybe not seeing as much success as I'd hoped, is there are any sort of weak spots or anything that like? the organization is looking to readdress in the next coming years or so? Hmm. Weak spot? No. Frustration? Never. Yes. Frustration. <laughs> Frustrations abound. So when people are involved, frustration is <laughs> my major frustration is with our citywide timeline and lack of rapid response to having declared a housing emergency. Okay. So our city council declared a housing emergency, what was it, two years ago? Yeah, that was with Hales. Yep. Yep. So what's a policy initiative that's been begun, passed, and implemented, right? We have the relocation ordinance, which, fantastic job, Commissioner New Daly. She came in and did exactly what she said she was going to do for renters to the best of her ability. I give her so many kudos for that. Beyond that, we don't have a policy solution from city council that reflects that state of emergency. I'm sorry. And um, this project that I keep talking about, the residential infill project, right, 45% of the city land area, this has been in the works for two years, too. And um, I think one of my major frustrations is people, uh, like, like like you were saying, what's your typical NIMBY reaction? Right. One of the typical NIMBY reactions, and I, and I don't say NIMBY in a derogatory way, I say it in a, the people who are opposed to things happening on their a block. D- a descriptive right? fashion. It's a descriptive term. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what I hear a lot is the residential infill project is doing this, that, and the other thing, and look around and things are changing. And it's like the hardest thing to fact check is all of that planning fatigue and policy stuff and the things we've been debating for the last two years. Literally none of that has actually happened or been implemented. Hmm. We are still operating under zoning codes that we've had in place largely since the 1950s or the 1970s. Okay. In fact, if if you burn down a lot of inner streetcar lovely neighborhoods that people love we would lose housing capacity in some spots because 
converted houses or duplexes or triplexes or courtyard apartments, the kind of things we want to re-legalize, oh, yes. we're grandfathered in, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me the level of um, public education that still needs to happen. And I don't say that in a condescending way because this is so complicated. Like there are so many moving parts. And as Mm -hmm. a city, like we do have planning fatigue right now. We absolutely do. Um, And I just think um, the the degree to which there has been a little bit of a glacial response to our worst housing crisis in a very long time has me very frustrated. Do you feel like it's a, a sense of resignation on like the general planning front? Or do you feel like, uh, there's just too many voices or like too many cooks in the kitchen trying to do various things. Neither. I just think okay. it's complicated. Okay. And I think, uh, you know, staff are tired. I mean, they, they've had to do a ton of implementation, implementation projects attached to the comp plan too. You know, it's not just this one. Um, and I think, you know, this is kind of one of the last few in the land use and they're, um, they're trying to balance kind of a lot of different competing needs and a lot of different competing voices um, and there are probably some process things behind the scene and legal things behind mm-hmm. the scene that, you know, you and I can't speak to. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you're reaching out and talking to folks, um, do you have like a, like an elevator pitch for sort of, uh, like, why does this matter? And, 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 and in terms of that planning fatigue, why like, should I care about <laughs> this? Not, not a, yeah, yeah, I guess that, but also like, what's your, what's your th- synthesis or have you found certain ways of talking about it that just really like reach through to people? Mm, yeah. I think every millennial I know. Uh, doesn't own a house yet unless their parents have a significant amount of money. And I think we have an entire generation that's going to be closed out of home ownership, which is very interesting looking mm. forward into retirement and a whole bunch of other um, things as our generation's going to age. Um, what's another thing that I just hear all the time? I Another, another interesting thing that I like is the um, adoration of Portland's uniqueness. Okay. And this is a thing that Yimbies and Nimbies share, which is, okay, we all we all want to keep Portland affordable, creative, interesting, weird, right? But how do, how do we do that? And how do you do that in an environment where, you know, housing prices are sky- skyrocketing anyways? We actually mapped this. You know, existing houses that used to be like a bungalow affordable starter home 10 years ago mm-hmm. are now over $500,000. Mm-hmm. And as incomes stagnate, right, and as people have a hard time making it work, that disconnect is only going to get worse. And to solve it, part of the equation is more housing. How do you do that in a way where we're keeping the character? And I don't say that like neighborhood character, you know, in a thinly veiled whatever way. I say that in an honest, like, how do we keep the character of our people? How do we keep the character of mixed income neighborhoods? How do we keep creative spaces for artists, right? How do we do all of that and also grow into a real metropolis? Because that's from a sustainability and growth angle where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, it seems like just looking at population growth that's an inevitability we're going to be yeah. a metropolis whether yep. whether we want to or not yeah build up or build out right and the the other thing that um, is an interesting tension for portland is that you know there's a steady stream of people who've been priced out of other cities across this country who move here <laughs> right <laughs> right because it's marginally more affordable than where they're coming from and they price out portlanders whose incomes haven't caught up mm. right right okay and I it, see this happening actually in various cities. Austin is kind of coming into their own kind of, I don't want to say crisis because I, I think people tend to use that word a little too much and it, it uses or it loses a little bit of meaning if you overuse it. But it, it's 
it's poised to look like another Portland in that in that realm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Portland, unfortunately, is poised to look like another Seattle or San Francisco if we don't get our act together. Um, and, I, and I don't say that to be hyperbolic. I say that um, really hopefully and why we're working so hard on things that we're working on is because we have a chance to avoid that. Um, and I don't just mean a little bit like we have a chance to do some real structural changes to the way we do housing in this town at a moment where we're still at the beginning of that growth period, believe it or not, um, where I think we have a lot of chances to get a lot of things right. Hmm. Indeed. Deep, deep thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But only if we find the political will and only yeah. if, you know, everyone who is not served by the status quo, mm-hmm. you know, turns out and tells decision makers what they need and where they're at. Do you think on the decision maker scale that that our decision makers themselves are also fatigued? Do you think that the the responsiveness of our our persons in office is the same that it was, uh, say, 10 years ago when we were also maybe talking just just briefly about these issues? I'm not even going to pretend to answer that question. (laughs) Seriously, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, I just I, I guess it got me wondering about the general like. Uh, resignation or, or lethargicism <laughs> that uh, right. I hope this isn't going to be no, fixed. It's, it's yeah. Forget le- it. Lethargy. Yeah. Lethargy. But you're fine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only halfway through the beer and we're doing great. <laughs> um, yeah, just just from that that sense of weariness because I feel like that comes up uh, in a lot of conversations that I have with people. It's just that that overall sense of of resignation or 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 yeah, I get interesting. Try to try to talk and see um yeah yeah, how we can combat that yeah i uh i get it i go through waves right where i'm feeling super energized one day and the next day i'm like my goodness what took the wind out of my sails and then it comes back because i have a really interesting conversation or someone else inspires me and i'm like oh yeah this is why we're doing this but Mm -hmm. especially with the climate you know stuff i uh i've gone through periods of real fatigue you got into housing through through climate change yeah um Still, how still do, do it. How do those two connect for for those of us who maybe can't put the pieces together ourselves? There's a good there's a good turn of turn of phrase which I very much like, and I apologize to the person who first coined it because um, I'm not going to give them due credit because I don't remember where it was published or where I heard it and whether those were the same thing or not. But um, you know, a good transportation plan is a good land use plan, right? So if you think about it, and this is again something Michael's touched on on Bike Portland and other places, but um, you know. You can't put in a transit line that will get frequent service ridership unless you've got 15 units per acre. Single family zoning, typically one home per 5,000 square foot, gets you to about seven or eight. Hmm. So duplexes, and this is density with a lowercase d, not density with an uppercase (laughs) d, will get you to frequent transit. So those little changes in how we plan and zone our cities have huge implications for our transit system, for biking, for walking, right? If you think about, you know, close your eyes and imagine a walkable neighborhood where a corner store is possible. What does a density look like there versus you close your eyes and you think about a streetscape dominated by automobiles? What do you get there? What are the little differences? What are the differences in units per acre or zoning or tree canopy or a number of other things that make up the built environment? My thoughts go to Arenko Station Mm. for something. Um, I actually haven't spent a whole lot of time there, but every time I go by there, I kind of look at that and and Mm -hmm. see, like, 
how um, transit and housing sort of kind of got built together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that is a transit-oriented development. Yes. That was very much intentional. And something that I think is very interesting about the problem facing our generation and, and America, right, having gone had the Eisenhower administration and GI Bill after World War One, yes. and essentially subsidized the suburbs, right, we have this suburban kind of um, um, bone structure. And now we are trying to densify and do transit and do bikeability on top of, right, mm-hmm. a bone structure that was built for the automobile outside. But Portland always was like this this city that 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 sort of intentionally fought against the suburban structure mm-hmm. right have you been east of 82nd oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. so yeah so i so i mean i was kind of softballing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fine and that's actually part of what we're fighting for with the residential infill project is to um both um as vivian satterfield put it recently that i love um stabilize East Portland in terms of housing, right, in terms of prices and in terms of renters' rights and in terms of um, anti-eviction and not relegate them to uh, total auto-dependency and how do we build in more Mm -hmm. housing options out there. And it's a really tough nut to crack. But I think, and that goes back to the parking crisis, right? A lot of people will be like, oh, well, if we were like Paris, right, or if we were like these European the cities, the Netherlands, then, you know, you, then, the then you could tell me, See what I mean? <laughs> then you could tell me I can't have my car, right. but I need my car because this, that, and the other thing. Because we're mm-hmm. not the Netherlands. We're not Copenhagen. Right. And, and we never will be. So you get into a chicken yes. and egg mm-hmm. where if you want to get to a density where you can improve transit and bikeability to the fact that enough people will actually give up their car, so, there's an awkward period. And so for that awkward period, um, it sounds like you feel that that is a policy decision that's going to drive that change rather than a social structure change. It's both. Okay. I think. Where do you think they meet? I think they meet in hmm, in the same place where social justice meets housing opportunity and affordability, which is that we don't only need a ho- affordable housing out there, right? It's not good enough to build affordable housing out there. And, you know, or don't come in my neighborhood or I don't need that here or what have you. It's like, no, we actually need to put the affordable housing where we have good transit and services, because what ends up happening is you have people who who um, can't afford to find housing that meets their needs in Mm -hmm. a place that's transit accessible, which is part of when you're on a budget, what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's some good articles. uh, that have come out recently, maybe you guys have seen them, maybe not. We're having a little bit of a decline in transit ridership in Portland right yes. now. Yep. Part of the reason for that is middle and lower income families are being priced out mm-hmm. of neighborhoods yes. where they would take transit. So they move out and then they drive. Yep. And then rich, Pat- richer people who are living in McMansions <laughs> or con- condos or whatever who come in, right? Or above your threshold. So, or a so threshold. they're in a place yeah. where they have transit access, yep. but they don't need it. So they drive. Mm-hmm. Or just transit has a tendency to to have this reputation of it's only for right you know yeah. the desperate or it's only it's because sleek, you don't have a car smooth. or you can't drive right you can't right. look good and take trimet right right it's a you, you totally which can. is false by the way i, I look, look great good. and i took trimet here see look at that <laughs> anyway um yeah so it's got that reputation so even even those who who can afford to live in areas with that that access won't out of some sort of enculturation 
to not take transit. There is no way that I can stress enough how much mixed in community, mixed income communities down to the block level help all of our public policy goals. <laughs> like there, there is literally no way for me to overstress that. <laughs> yeah. And let's define mixed income then. So we're talking about sort of the, I don't know, the, the upper class and upper middle class also living in the same block in the same yeah and then if you can introduce you know programmatic solutions to get people you know living at 60 80 percent median family income 30 right so now we're getting down to the 30 40 thousand dollars per year right. and even lower if if you can if you can create opportunities in amenity rich well-connected areas you have found you know the 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 golden goose egg you have right, you have right. you have solved so many of your public policy um um issues going forward hmm. and that's and that's something all cities are struggling with right you can basically draw a line around certain areas now in portland and say if you don't make you know six figures like don't you can't bother. find a house in don't this neighborhood looking over there yes. yeah so um in, in terms of the access and sort of we were talking about the ability to to hit corner stores and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and i'm just wondering in context of Portland's 20-minute community vision, yeah. do you brush up against that in conversation or do you feel like that's no longer, uh, or, or I guess what I mean is, do you feel like it's still relevant? Like is the 20-minute community still something that we're striving towards or are we working to like fix housing first and then worry about the 20-minute community or, or such? Are they the same thing? Okay. So I, seriously. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think... Um, w- do you think it's an error to see those as, as two separate yeah, issues? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, ha- critical housing densities precede everything else that you would want to do in a neighborhood. Um, I think also, you know, um, the kind of housing that goes in really matters. I think that we need to do it in a way where we're being creative. We're delivering smaller units. You know, we're able to have a, have a bonus structure. We're, in, we're, we're incentivizing that programmatic affordability that I was talking about. Um, and then I think the the thing that we're losing the fastest um, that I have seen, and this is anecdotal in Portland, that I'm saddest about, is smaller neighborhood businesses. So we need affordability um, uh, st- strategies, not just for affordable housing, but for small business owners, because it's it's becoming increasingly kind of boutique, right? In yeah. the same places where we're seeing redevelopment, we're also mm-hmm. seeing um, a lot of uh, stores where you know, the older neighborhood residents wouldn't necessarily shop there. Like you're losing the hardware store or sure. the international food store. Or they or... sometimes become tourist destinations. Right, right. And, you know, tourism dollars are, are great and fine, but... Yeah, to know, a certain that, extent. Yeah, that, that shouldn't be the end goal. That, yeah, yeah right. that shouldn't be like, we're building this building so that we can put this tourist destination right here, and then we'll have some housing on top of that. Right. So you also need a critical ma- uh, mass of people, right, who would actually use those services. Right. Yeah. So in terms of folks uh, living in Portland or, or who are interested in the, the five core tenants, um, what is like what is one thing you would recommend to do that they could do so to get more engaged or more involved in this process? Well, um, this Thursday, the 30th, is actually the last day to submit comments directly to planning staff on the Residential Info Project. If you go to the Take Action page on the portlandforeveryone.org website, People will see our little quick summary, our entire draft letter, Michael Anderson's blog post summarizing the initiative. I would encourage everyone to visit that page and see if you feel inspired to email staff your thoughts. <laughs> yes. It's there not glorious, <laughs> but it can be done. And it, does, it, yeah. does it also 
I may be mistaking your site for another site I was on today, mm-hmm. and I apologize. That's okay. Um, but does it also connect to PBOT survey as well? There's a Bureau of Planning and Sustainability survey. That's not the PBOT survey. Oh, okay. So many surveys, sorry. so yes. little time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. it's but, not, I'm sorry, but, it's not a survey. It's a comment form. Okay. But November 30th is the last day that they're accepting Comment by Thursday. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. The episode will be out on tomorrow. Tuesday. 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 Oh, good. This is still relevant. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I forgot about that part. And even if the date's not not relevant, the the actual what we're talking about, of course. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is this is not (laughs) going to be solved in the last week. (laughs) You will still have chances. (laughs) Um, Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, Thoughts, uh, concerns, etc. Anything that you feel like calls to action. Calls to action. I guess we already had one, but yeah. Um, check out portlandforeveryone.org. Um, I, I think I want to leave by saying that, you know, even though we have ups and downs and, you know, there's a lot of, um, dialogue and passion, I think that's, that's one of the best things about Portland is, um, how engaged a lot of people really are in public policy and what a smart town we live in. And, you know, I think that, um, if any American city can find the most creative solutions to to their housing conundrum, we'll say not crisis, right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, then I, I think we have a pretty good shot and I, and I really appreciate the, the high level of public participation in all these issues. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I even mean it. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for coming in. Yeah. Okay. Thank right. you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Madeline. Thanks. Bye. So that was Madeline Kovacs of Portland for everyone. And this is. I love, I love, I love, I love my don't, don't ever use that. All right. What's up on our calendar? On. The second Friday of every month. Yes, that's right. 12 months a year, 365 days, but only 12 of those days part of the month. We've got the Boston Bike Party. That's some good math. I, um, thank you. (laughs) It's probably the best math I've done all day. I'm not even sure if it's right. But we also have on the second Friday of every month, the Indianapolis Bike Party. Yes. And... Every other Tuesday here in town, I didn't put this on the calendar, but I, I think it's worth mentioning, is the Tuesday Night Adventure Ride. Mm. What's the uh, adventure ride? That It's an adventure. <laughs> it's kind of a mystery ride, but starts earlier. Ooh. Yeah. That actually sounds and, very appealing to me. <laughs> and um, this Tuesday, which would be tomorrow, so you probably already missed it, listeners, but this Tuesday, I believe they're heading up to PIR for okay. the- uh, the bike, the lights. Oh event. yeah, definitely. We were thinking about doing that tomorrow. Yeah, excellent. On uh, November twenty eighth is the Winter Wonderland Bike the Lights ride, and following that on December first is Pedal Shift Turns one hundred. Yeah, with meetup at the Beermongers. Where's the Beermongers? I believe that's at Southeast Division and Twelve. Oh, cool. I will do my best to make it. Sounds like a fun event. December 2nd, I've talked about it earlier, Portland Podcast Festival. With yours truly. Brock is yes. also making appear- an appearance for this event. Yes. Um, so we're, have we, we still need to figure out the format We for haven't that. figured this out yet. But, but trust us, we will figure it out and we'll have an excellent show ready for you. I mean, we'll just have 20 minutes of jackassery <laughs> like we always do. <laughs> the jackassery you've come to know and love from the Sprocket Podcast. <laughs> Um, December 2nd, also, Bike Parade 3 Coloring Book Launch Party 
Tomas Quinones has been creating fanciful drawings of animals on bikes since 2011. Come celebrate his newest volume with a coloring party and pick up your own copy of Bike Parade or all three. And this will be held at um, Books with Pictures. Okay. Also, not quite on Southeast 12th and Division, but pretty dang close. Close enough that you yes. might actually have an opportunity to check it out for, a, could, for after book signing. have a beer and then go color, or you can color and take your coloring book that you purchased mm-hmm. over to the beer mongers. Yeah, and you could have a coloring book from before you visited and one from <laughs> after. And then keep the, keep the second one for another day. <laughs> <laughs> On December 9th, we have the barbecue and boosh ride. We are spinning over to St. John's to visit Homegrown Smoker for the best comfort food in town. It's also vegan. Afterwards, we'll stop at Soma's Self-Service Kombucha and bring a growler or buy one of theirs. These samples are free. Yes, this is the uh, the self-serve kombucha thing. I think we mentioned this last week. I believe we did. Yes, or this it, is perhaps the two episodes puddle ago. cycle ride. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought about, I thought it's worth mentioning here because... It sounds like a really awesome time, and you should all go if you happen to be in the Portland area. And if you can't make it to the Puddle Suckles ride, that is okay, because we have yet another wonderful event on our calendar, that being Bikecraft. Bikecraft, yes. December 15th through the 17th. Um, If you're into art and you're into local art, there's a lot of local art happening at Bikecraft. And if you're into keeping your Christmas gifts Pretty, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, local. No, what am I trying <laughs> That was terrible. Uh, keeping your Christmas gifts snazzy. Yes. Getting some snazzy Christmas gifts. That's probably not the right word either. No. We will find this word. If you're trying to take the materialization out of Christmas, but still have some material from Christmas celebration... Then you can feel good going to the bike craft. <laughs> yeah, I'll f- I'll figure out a better pitch later. <laughs> but bike craft, fifteenth through the seventeenth, Friday is sort of a pre-party that um, they will be charging admission. But I think they said they wouldn't really turn anyone away. Um, there will be music, there will be beer, and there will be crafts. And then on Sunday, the seventeenth, there will be clowns. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, go there. And if you aren't able to go see the clowns, that's okay, because up next we have... What can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike? I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. It circles around the city light. From our headlines this week, uh, we have one courtesy of Armando, or Dude Luna's Twitter feed. Yes. The Big Bike Helmet Debate. And I was actually looking at this this afternoon. Um, the article was published uh, several months ago, but I think it still inter- or provides um, some interesting food for thought uh, in that something that many of our Sprocket Podcast listeners are already attuned to and that you don't make cycling safer by forcing them to dress for urban warfare <laughs> is the title like of this article. I like that title, yeah. Um, so Dr. John Black is an eminent doctor of emergency medicine who has managed helicopter acute medical teams and advised the government on emergency care. 
Black believes helmets should be obligatory by law. Uh, I'll insert that they are, are in Australia presently. Oh. Um, he was among a series of doctors who wrote to the British Medical Association requesting that it formally call for mandatory helmet use. Quote, if someone's unprotected head strikes a solid surface, such as the roadside or the pavement, even if it's a ground-level fall, patients can sustain devastating head and brain injuries, he says. We know that the wearing of cycling helmets can reduce the risk of that by up to two-thirds. Um, Dr. Harry Rudder is a public service expert who specializes in physical activity. He is skeptical about an excessive focus on helmets as a safety measure. Quote, most of the risk uh, of severe injury... While cycling is not intrinsic to the activity, motorists impose it on cyclists. He what argued. What was that last part again? Uh, motorists impose it upon cyclists. Okay. Uh, he argued in the influential handbook City Cycling, quote, cycling is a benign activity that often takes place in dangerous environments. Of the three main elements determining serious cycling injuries, the road design, conditions, and the motorists, and the cyclists, the cyclists are the most studied category. Interesting. It also mentions in this article that while uh, Dr. Black is a neurologist, um, Dr. Rudder is an epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. So while Dr. Black is correct from a neurological standpoint, that looks at the patient. Um, and Dr. Rudder's field of, of study is population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, an important distinction when talking about helmet law. Yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, helmets can, can save your brain. I don't think anyone will really argue that point. Mm -hmm. the, the issue at hand is whether mandatory helmet law saves lives. Mm. Um, and what, what say I want to say... Do we see the forest through the trees, or well, do we see the trees through of, the forest? One of our Twitter followers, or, or someone we follow on Twitter... Um, I don't want to say who it is only because, I, one, I didn't ask permission, and, and two, I can't remember. <laughs> but um, also posted a link um, essentially saying in, in all, in all uh, places where mandatory cycling um, was, or sorry, where mandatory helmet laws were, were enacted, no discernible uh, reduction was made in head injuries to cyclists. So you're about the same off. So... Yeah, I mean, so while one might say, like, you know, helmets save lives, helmets will save your brain, that's not something that I think, any again, we could argue what if, against. What if both but, can be true? <laughs> what? <laughs> you, can yeah. be, you can be a double winner. You can both not uh, mandate helmets be worn, but if you are a person who believes that it can save your head and let's say you want to wear a helmet you can choose to wear a helmet many of us do myself included indeed um but i've often said many many times um i'm not wearing a helmet because i think cycling is dangerous mm. i'm wearing a helmet because i think cycling in the city is dangerous yeah i was gonna say i wear a helmet mainly because I am not the greatest cyclist. Uh, I tend to, <laughs> I tend to, like, I think I, uh, on a three-year interval, I usually take a big spill. Yeah. And um, as the numbers check out, and, and I plan to cycle for a long time, I think it just personally came <laughs> it's down just to. just worth doing. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a. And there's, there's that. I mean, I don't know. My, my big, my big thing is it's speed. It's always, always comes down to speed mm. of impact. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, me biking on myself, most I could do, and that's like really hauling ass, is going to be like 25 at mm-hmm. a sustained clip. Yeah. Um, and I'm generally going to be wearing a helmet if if I'm intending on going that fast. And And regardless, like, the difference between me falling off my bike at 25 miles an hour is going to hurt like crazy versus me colliding with a car, regardless of what my speed is, mm-hmm. at 35 miles yeah. an hour. Oh, yeah. Speed, definitely a factor. You know? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, and I guess the, the helmet debate has come up before. Um, and I think we had an article. I'm trying to remember if it was, I hope it wasn't this exact same article, but I feel like we've had an article very similar to this Um about a year and a half ago, roughly. Uh, But yeah, I feel like in terms of uh, looking at moving populations towards more um, like transit-friendly services, that cycling is an important link in that. Uh, And and just the numbers show that if you mandate helmet use, that you often don't reach that goal. Right. Um, Cycling drops. Yep. I just, I guess I feel strongly that it shouldn't be mandated. However, it should be easily available for those <laughs> that do. Definitely. Um, yeah, you, we could also come at it with the angle of like, it's another barrier to entry. Yeah. Oh, you certainly. Know, I, I've saved up this $400 for this bike I've had mm-hmm. my eye on, but now I can't buy it because I need yeah. to buy another like 50 to $70 helmet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Also, the the most interesting, and I'll, I'll le- we'll leave this article on this, is that there was a study cited within um, comparing one uh, researcher's encounters. And so basically what they did is they went out and they took a ride over a measured distance and they recorded the interactions that they had with other vehicle drivers. And what they found um, with a single person study was that when somebody was wearing a helmet, people tended to drive more closely to them, um, usually a difference of about two or three inches. Oh, yeah. And the Dick Van Dyke uh, phenomenon, right? Perhaps. I, I'm actually not familiar. Or maybe the, the Mary Poppins phenomenon, I think, is what it was okay. called. Okay, okay. If, if someone is, is not dressed like a typical cyclist, mm-hmm. um, automobile users are more likely to give them more room. Yeah. And this was actually reaffirmed with a second study that was a follow-up to this a couple of years later in which uh, some researchers had a friend do the riding and they recorded the results. Um, and this was in Britain of somebody wearing um, normal cycling gear, uh, wh- someone wearing a wig so as to be um, confused for a female rider was the intent. And uh-huh. then uh, one wearing a vest that said police and one wearing a vest that said polite. And what oh, I found right. particularly interesting about the study, and so um, apparently this is a thing that equestrians often do. So um, from a distance or as approaching via driving, polite looks like police, but you won't get in trouble for wearing a polite <laughs> vest, um, right. just confusing people. But if you had to take a guess, guess which outfit people passed the closest with? Um I would say the stereotypical cyclist. Yep. It was yeah. actually the polite vest. So, oh, for real? Yeah. So people were actually more inclined to to drive dangerously and pass more closely to somebody impersonating an officer, almost as an act of retribution right. towards that like, person. God, God damn you for making me think you were a cop. <laughs> or, and or, also or, like, for, uh, for or for me tricking be, me, you yeah. dirty cyclist, or right. something like that. Um, Don't you tell me to be polite. Precisely. Uh, but yeah, I just found it interesting as a, as a social... Uh, experiment in terms yeah. of, of of where those margins lie and how how we're willing to place others lives at risk um, in in a in a short moment um next up is 
the sole reason why I'm still cycling, and this came um, to many of our hashtag Yegbike friends. Yegbike. Um, that is our, our friends in Edmonton. Um, this is the sole reason why I'm still cycling. A newbie winter biker's praise for the downtown bike grid in Edmonton. Protected bike lanes have made pedaling through the snow easier than ever. On May 31st, before the downtown Edmonton grid was open, the city counted 2,454 people on bikes. After the grid opened in early June, counts had increased to almost 5,000 people by the end of the month. Numbers stayed high all the way through the summer before dropping to about 3,000 on October 4th. And on October 5th, there were still... 1,154 people out pedaling around the 7.8-kilometer network. Hmm. Build it, and, and more will come. Yes, and it doesn't matter if it snows. Yeah. They will still be there. I wonder if we'll ever have a permanent better NATO. <sighs> Wouldn't it be? One, one can dream. <laughs> <laughs> From MobilityLab.org. Uh, we kind of referenced this throughout the show already. Uh, Portland's parking policy successes will get to go now in California, or get a go now in California. So the California Senate Bill 35, signed by Governor Jerry Brown in September, takes the smart step of ending minimum parking requirements for garages in new apartment and condo buildings, quote, within one half mile of public transit in cities that have failed to meet housing targets. Uh, Ending parking minimums is just half the battle. One, at some point, probably quite soon, your local department professionals will realize that they can build more homes more cheaply without on-site parking, and they will do so. Two, the people who move to these garage-free homes will own fewer cars than the average person in their area, but many of them will still own cars, and they will park on nearby streets. And three, their car-owning neighbors, retailers, and residents alike will get upset and they will hold you, city officials, responsible for their problem. Yes, this is uh, kind of written as a warning letter to the uh, people of California or the legislators of California that this is a good first step, but it is still only just the first step. Heads up. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, Tony and Michael bring up these three points here, um, especially the last two, uh, the people who move into these garage-free homes may own fewer cars, but will still own a car, and they will just park it on a city street somewhere. Mm-hmm. And when those um, big developments happened in along Southeast Division, um, was that three, four years ago? Yeah, right around. Um, I saw that all over the place, uh, to the point where, you know, obviously some people... Uh, not so obviously, maybe, but uh, <laughs> some people took it upon themselves to um, create more diverters or to advocate for better mm-hmm. cycling infrastructure Along Clinton, on Clinton Street. There, yeah, I just forgot Clinton altogether and said, "Well, I'm just going to go down Division <laughs> from now <laughs> and th- on." And that's why they call you the King of Division. Yes, because uh, it was just it was just too much, mm. you know. Um, people, and it still happens, especially on weekends when <laughs> uh, people drive to. What is supposed to be a walkable street um, for uh, food or whatever, hanging out on the weekends, um, they drive to this area and then they just spend, hmm. you know, their time looking for parking spots on the side streets. And so I'm wondering if Division is one of those that Madeline was referencing and that there's this like awkward period where if you can get those units above 15 
15 units per um shoot i forget her metric uh but but if it's if, we're, if there's a bit of a lag time there yeah. or or something like that and, and maybe not division maybe division street's not the best example of this but um in terms of the article in regards to california's passage of that writ law um it, it will be interesting to see if they take any steps which portland didn't take or hasn't yet taken yeah. in order to redress that concern and, and maybe do a maybe even do a better job right well i think they have more of the resources um and maybe even more of the political will i mean their cities are a lot bigger they uh last i heard the stat california was like the eighth largest economy in the world hmm. not just you know in the states mm-hmm. In the whole world, you know, so that already yeah. beats other countries. Well, there's uh, a in- infographic economies. I saw the other day that was like San Bernardino County represents like seventy-ish percent of like any other population. Uh, I guess as it spread out out across the U.S., like you could pop San Bernardino pretty much anywhere, and it would be the biggest. Oh center. really? Um, I'll That's see if I can. I'll send you a link to that. We might be able to put it in the show notes. But it's just a nice visual representation of the density uh, that you have in yeah. California. And I, so I think if anywhere is possible, California should be able to do it. That said, California was built very car centric, and so there's probably going to be a large awkward period regarding the awkward period, California. You have our best wishes. Yeah, and, and we look forward. You can to do seeing, it. We look forward to your accomplishments accomplishments and to seeing what comes from this it's exciting well, you know what we may not be the we, no where am i going with this we may not have the largest the eighth largest economy in the world we also don't have we got mail hey we got mail we don't have any mail this week so if you'd like to change that, <laughs> we still love hearing your thoughts. Yes. We hope you didn't scare you off the whole mail train. I got it. So last week you mentioned I, I was, you put me on a mission, I think, to mail um, the stickers from mm-hmm. Michigan. And I am not proud to say I did not do that. Aww. But this is kind of a, I'm taking this as kind of a kick in the pants in that, you know, if. If um, I'm expecting to get mail, I should probably start sending out mail. We should. It's so. a the reciprocity is satisfying. Yes, quite. So those of you waiting on stickers, you will be getting them. I'm putting them in the mail. This time I mean it for real. Speaking of uh, Instagram, we should we should Instagram these stickers going out. <laughs> as a no, yeah, you you. That's a great point. <laughs> you will know I'll, I'll before take a picture. you have them. Yeah, I'll take a picture. <laughs> and we will be held accountable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, oh, dang it. You know, we for, forgot a picture again. Speaking of Instagram. Speaking of Instagram. <laughs> uh, well, so it goes. As Kurt Vonnegut would say. Although, um, as a friend most recently pointed out, I've, I've, I think I've been misusing that term only slightly in that Apparently, he only uses it when a death occurs in Correct. the book. Um, so hopefully, nobody has just passed away. That would be very <laughs> unfortunate. But so it goes. So it goes. And so goes our show. 
The Sprocket Podcast is produced at StreamPDX Community Audio Studio thanks to the generous support of OpenSignal. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and the Instagrams at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lame for our theme music. Kurt Bird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to our sustaining donors, Logan Smith, Shadowfoot, Katharina Mellengard, Wayne Norman, Doug Robertson, Ethan Georgie, Justin Martin, Eric Iverson, Cameron Lean, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn. And Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Weiss, Todd Parker, Dan Gebhardt, who's a time traveler, Zoe Campagna, Dave Knows, Chris Smith, Christy Kaster, Caleb Jenkinson, JP Culey, Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Sebastian Poole, Marco Lowell, Rich Otterstrom, Andrew in Colorado, Drew the Welder, Anna, I'll be home soon, John Wasserman, Andre Johnson, King of Division, Josh Zissen, Richard D, Guthrie Straw, who's right here? Hello. We still read your name. That I am. Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Ruhr Granary. Campsite, Mac Nurse David. Kathy at Cycling, Walking, Eating, Talking. Nathan Bolton, Chris Rawson, Rorian, Michigan. Michael Florney, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay. Where were we? Tim, Tim Coleman, Mr. T, Harry Hugel. Ed Whitman, EJ Finneran, Paul Colbertson. If that's your real name. It just might be Brad Hipwell, Thomas Gato, Keith Hutchinson. Granger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Derek Wagner, Jason Offenberg, Microcosm Publishing. David Moore, Dennis O'Brien, Todd Grossbeck. Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris Barron. Sean Baird, Simon, Gregory Braithwaite. And Ryan Morrow, whose envelope of stickers I just got from Brock today. So they will also be going out soon, and all of our former donors who helped us get this far. Now brush your teeth. And go to bed!